Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I think one of the most remarkable aspects in politics today is the extent to which we refer, we refer to these issues as culture wars. Let's call them what they are. We're, we're talking about women's rights. We're talking about children's welfare. You know, we're talking about how we think about, about our national history. You know, many of these things are the foundations of civilization, and we shouldn't be ashamed or bullied into thinking that they are somehow fringe issues that only 5 or 10% of the country think about. And if you vocalize your concerns about them, you know, you're sort of a pariah for doing so because most of these positions are mainstream issues. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Matthew Goodwin. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on this week in particular, given everything that's happening in British politics. So let's jump straight into it. So we have a new prime minister, Rishi Sunak. Uh, Boris Johnson seems to have been put back in his box. He, he didn't quite make the cut in terms of getting enough support from conservative MPs. Uh, poor old Liz Truss and Trussonomics already seems to be a fading memory. That was an incredibly short-lived political and economic experiment that already seems to be one for the history books. And what a lot of people are saying about the rise of Rishi from the rubble of the past few weeks is that this represents a return to normality, a restoration of adult politics, grown-up politics, competent politics, and we can all now breathe a sigh of relief. I wanted to ask you to begin with, do you accept that narrative or do you think things might be a little bit more complicated than that? I think it's very tempting to sort of fall into the the narrative of this is a sort of return to a sort of dry managerialism, technocracy. This is about, you know, sort of Westminster, SW1, whatever you want to call it, reasserting its control. And what we're going to see is a sort of quick return to the conservative politics of the 2010s a sort of George Osborne 2.0. And I, I was of that view. I think a few months ago, that was my sort of working assumption when it came to Rishi Sunak. I actually think today um, that I'm going to reserve judgment for a few weeks and months and, and actually mm. just see what Sunak does when he's confronted with these enormous choices. And the reason for that is, you know, talking to people within and around the Sunak camp, there are those who say, you know, basically, this is about competence. This is about, you know, kind of ruthless execution of power, someone with experience. But then there are also quite a few people who say, look, actually, you know, a lot of the stuff that's written about Sunak actually gets him wrong. He is actually quite culturally conservative on a lot of issues. He does kind of understand where this new conservative electorate is at. Um, you know, he, he does read the research, the evidence. So I'm, I'm pausing judgment just to see mm. what he does in this early honeymoon period. I think reserving judgment is always a good idea when, when there's a new prime minister, because often what the establishment 
hopes a new prime minister will do and what a new prime minister actually does, they can be different things. I think one of the things that concerns me anyway is that you're right that we can't be certain what Rishi Sunak will do in power. It does remain to be seen. But the noise is coming from sections of the establishment that I thought had been slightly pushed aside by the electorate do concern me. So you mentioned there, for example, George Osborne. George Osborne seems to me to have become incredibly outspoken and even quite cocky over the past few weeks. He was on TV the other day saying that the markets have spoken and and they've chosen Rishi Sunak. And of course, there are other voices from that pre-Brexit era of Cameroon politics who are feeling quite confident that Rishi Sunak will restore their view of the world and their approach to political life. So leaving aside for a moment the possibility that Rishi Sunak won't do that and that he might do something that will surprise them and surprise other people too. What do you think that uh, that aspiration for a return to that kind of pre-2016 political and economic orthodoxy, what does that tell us, do you think, about the, the old establishment and what their aspirations right now might be? Well, in a way, I think that's what's so interesting about the reaction to Sunak, because if if this push to, you know, sort of return to Osbornomics and the conservative uh, politics of the 2010s were to succeed, the Conservative Party would be slaughtered at the next general yeah. election. And so the constraints that are on the Conservative Party because of the transitions it's gone through in 2016, 17 and 19 mean that actually it can't return to that territory. And if it if it did, you know, it would literally be be completely demolished by Labour and the SNP at the next election. So, you know, the electoral logic that now underpins the Conservative Party means that really, if it wants to hold power and if it wants to do what no other political party in the history of British politics has ever done, which is go on to win a a fifth term, then it's going to actually have to be responsive to this new Conservative electorate. So I'm not actually as, as gloomy as some people are, because I think, you know, the Conservative Party historically has always been ruthlessly focused on maintaining and upholding power. And most people within the parliamentary party, which again has has changed a lot since the 2010s, you know, mm. the Red Wallers are are a vocal group, the ERG are a vocal group, you know, the common sense group are very vocal. They all understand where the party's electorate is at, which is partly why it was so conflicted over Johnson and why it was so, you know, adamant early on that, you know, trust was a disaster. And I think, you know, trust, we can come back and talk about her later on. But mm-hmm. um, with Sunak, I just don't think he can return to pre-2016 conservative politics because he's not an idiot. I mean, he will know that London, university towns, middle-class professionals, graduates, you know, young Zoomers, he will know that a lot of those groups are off the table two years from now. He will know that because of Brexit, because of the anger and the resentment that's built up over 12 years, winning those people back is going to be impossible. You know, maybe the election after it starts to become possible. But that's why I think, you know, even the sort of most, you know, Osborne-like technocrat kind of conservative would accept that they're going to have to react and move if they are to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I want to ask you a bit more about the new electorate and the political realignment, which you've written about at length over the past few years. 
and in your forthcoming book, which we'll talk about in a moment. But firstly, let's talk then about Boris Johnson and, and, and Liz Truss and the problems there. So you wrote this week, or last week, I think, about um, the idea that Boris Johnson could ride back in to take over the Conservative Party and get back into Downing Street and easily win an election may have been a bit more mythical than some people thought. And that's quite a counterintuitive idea, certainly if you listen to Boris fanboys and fangirls, because the point they make, the correct point they make, is that Boris Johnson got a stonking uh, majority in December 2019. I know we don't have an, a, a presidential system, as people keep reminding us, but it does seem fairly obvious to me that lots of people voted for the Tory party because of Boris Johnson, because of what he was saying and because of he how he appeared and because of what he seemed to represent. So they say that, which is true, but I think they probably overestimate the idea that Boris Johnson is still popular in the same place as he was popular in the past, and that his actions over the past few years uh, haven't uh, had a detrimental impact on his standing in the eyes of the public. So t to start with Boris first, what's your view now on why Boris failed over the past few days and the prospects for him coming back at some point in the future? Or do you think the Boris moment has just passed? Well, I, I think firstly, um, what, I mean, one of the arguments that I wrote in my Substack a few days before Johnson basically failed to get to the numbers, which he clearly, he clearly did fail to get the numbers he wanted. I said, basically, look, there are three arguments against Johnson um, having a, a sequel. The first, which a lot of MPs um, pushed is that he was just simply incompetent and he just wasn't suited to to high office. Um, personally, I sort of agreed with that. You know, I, mm. I was much more supportive of what Johnson was trying to do in 2019 because of the political and the constitutional crisis that was rapidly engulfing the country. And I thought, all things considered, because I was, you know, one of the one of the academics who put my head up above the parapet and said, you know, we need to implement Brexit and we need to do it. Yeah. Um, I just felt. At that, in that moment, at that time, he was he was the person that was going to do that. So, you know, the competency point then became increasingly visible as we went through, you know, COVID and um, and also Partygate um, and, and a lack of judgment there as well. I think the second argument, which was also true, is that, you know, Johnson wasn't only incompetent, he just at certain points really just had very bad judgment. You know, if you look back at some of the decisions that he made, in office, some of the people he had around him. Like one of the things I always found fascinating about the Johnson premiership, there were no serious thinkers in the Johnson camp. Like there was like one or two people maybe, but this was nothing like the sort of Thatcher era or the Blair era or the Brown era. Like it was a very, it seemed to me a very sort of lightweight operation. And then the third and most persuasive argument against Johnson, which was made to me by a number of Red Wall MPs, was, look, even if you are like a Johnson fanboy, at the end of the day, you got a really crappy return on your investment because if you <laughs> actually look at all the things he did, you know, this was not someone who was sticking to the realignment. Like, this was not somebody yeah. who was really going hard, you know. And, and there were so many people over the last few years who I think were desperately looking at Johnson and just being like, you know, they, they were projecting onto him. You know, they wanted him to be this figure. But then you look at all the stuff that happened around um, the online safety bill and, and net zero, a lot of the progressive stuff, immigration policy, you know, the small boats in the channel, the culture stuff. He just was either absent or was kind of making these decisions that were completely adrift from where 
his new electorate was. So mm-hmm. when I was hearing, you know, yeah, MPs who should otherwise be kind of shouting for Johnson from the rooftop saying, it, actually, it's not about the competency point. It's about the delivery point. He just didn't deliver what I needed him to to deliver in order to hold my seat. That's when I was like, well, this guy's toast. Like, He's not going to get the nominations. He's not going to get the numbers that he needs. And also, I was just struck. Like, I think most of us saw Trustful coming like weeks before it did. I think most of us were aware that this premiership was imploding. Mm. And Johnson doesn't come back until two days before to start drumming up nominations. Like that to me, again, it's this judgment point. If you think mm. that the, the, the epicenter of politics is imploding, you sense a second opportunity, you know, you come back and you do the groundwork, you come back and you set up the team, you start having meetings, you start bringing people together. And the fact that he sort of zoomed in, you know, with 48 hours to go and then didn't get the nominations and then left everybody hanging by saying, well, he's out of the, you know, he's decided to, to, to leave the race was just, you know, classic Johnson. And I, I agree with some people who have said since that because of how he handled the mechanics of that comeback or that attempted comeback, it, it almost obliterates his chances of doing so again. I think that's a very apt description of the of the Boris era across the board, in fact. And I think one of the things I find frustrating about the focus on competence, of course, we all want competent politicians. We all know, we all want politicians who know what they're doing. And it is correct that Boris was uh, very often incompetent and made bad judgments and behaved in an unprofessional manner. But I think one of the things that's frustrating about that, it, it overlooks his greater crime, one might say, which is that he didn't have much substance and he didn't adhere to some of the ideas and some of the aspirations that were invested in him by the realigned electorate and and particularly on the culture war front where i think he was completely lacking he he backed out he was continually accused by uh, newspapers like the guardian of fighting a culture war and i remember reading those pieces thinking if only that were true if only he were raising some of these issues but he's not and he certainly didn't do it very well but just just briefly on that i think the other point about johnson that very few people appreciated during his premiership yeah he is genuinely cosmopolitan in many respects Mm. like the, the trump comparison was just very, very often misleading. Instinctively, Johnson is basically liberal. I mean, you know, he is somebody who comes from a very, very particular bohemian cosmopolitan family background. Yeah. And he, I think for that reason, just wanted to be seen by many other liberals as somebody who was nice and was not toxic. And he was, I think, too preoccupied with how he would be, how he was seen than remaining connected with the people who had actually put him into power. And I think that was also a dynamic of his premiership that ended up really undermining uh, what he was about and what he was trying to do. Yeah, and and it was such a great shame. I remember the, the day after the election in December 2019 when Boris thanked the working classes for lending them his votes and and openly recognised that this was not a normal thing for them to do. And then to squander that and to sink back into his fairly typical bohemian, uh, supposedly liberal politics, as you outline it there, I think was just a bit of a betrayal. And lots of people will have felt that quite strongly. Before we get on to what that squandering means for the realignment in, in British political life, uh, let's just talk about Liz Truss. So I, I flit between feeling sympathy for Liz Truss because I'm sure she feels incredibly humiliated and uh, she's the shortest ever 
uh, serving prime minister in the country and all of her Thatcherite aspirations and performances came to naught in the end. But uh, the other part of me thinks, well, what did she expect? If you are going to bring in a free market style economic uh, approach, one that is influenced by the IEA, and I should say that I, I like the IEA, I think they've got some good people there, but no one ever voted for them, then I think it does indicate a misunderstanding of where the electorate is at in relation to issues around the market, about public spending, about the importance of government assistance for communities and the agenda of levelling up. So was Truss's mistake simply that she misunderstood where the electorate is at, and particularly where people who voted for the Tories in 2019, what their thinking is as well? I think to me, Truss is just so <laughs> so fascinating as a character and as a, as a short chapter in the history of British politics, because yeah. sort of, I still feel like I'm sort of in shock just trying to process yeah. you know, what yeah. happened to that, to that premiership. But, you know, I, we always knew that there was a strain within the Conservative Party that looked a lot like the Trust premiership. We always knew mm. it. We talked about it. It was exaggerated by certain sections of the media. It was, you know, often portrayed as being much bigger than it was. It was only ever a fringe part of the Conservative Party. And then when it when she came in with the mini budget and everything else, I just thought, wow, okay, this is really happening. And I think probably what struck me really the most during that time was just the sort of complete and utter disconnection from the people that are voting for the Conservative Party. Like if you yeah. if you look at the post-2019 Conservative electorate, and I've been doing this this week for a paper I'm writing, we, um, we've tried to identify how big the kind of trust um, group is within the conservative electorate, like people that are basically pro-tax cuts, are comfortable with high migration, are pro-globalization, the kind of Davos on Thames, liberal lever vision of Brexit. And I'm telling you, like, we have to relax things to, to the definition of that just to get it up to 10%. Like it is yeah. so fringe uh, within the conservative party. And and if you were to take a you know view of trust as being libertarian, and I don't think trust is libertarian, I many of my libertarian friends have been in touch this week with me to make you know to explain why they don't think she's libertarian and so on but let's just let's just say there is a perception that she was libertarian you know one of the remarkable things is there were more of those voters in the lib dems than there are in the conservative party right and that's one of the fascinating points about british politics so she was completely disconnected from the people that were voting for a party the the way in which they sort of naively underestimated the the market reaction was just astounding Mm-hmm. The lack of preparation going into that premiership, like if you go back and remember the polls, she knew she was going to be PM in July. Like she knew the lead was so big against Sunak. She she knew that she was going to be prime minister. And yet there was no attempt to frame her premiership. There was no attempt to explain what the problems in the country were and why she was introducing this new economic orthodoxy. There was seemingly no attempt to take as many MPs along with her as possible. The uh, death of the Queen was obviously a, an unfortunate beginning to the premiership, but she fumbled that. She was the only prime minister in history, not in our recorded history, not to have a bounce in the opinion polls, which I also thought was a, a telling sign. And basically within six weeks, you know, she she basically knocked off 15 points from the Conservative vote. I mean, it was it was just utterly remarkable. I mean, she she basically did two or three times as much damage as Partygate did 
right? If you looked at it in terms of yeah. the, poll, the polling here. So, so I'm still, still trying to process exactly how all of that happened and so on. And it's now, you know, CNAC's job to pick it up and run with it. But, but the blunt reality, the impact and legacy of all that is nobody who is associated with that doctrine or nobody who is associated rightly or wrongly with libertarian conservatism or the Davos on Thames vision of Brexit will ever be let anywhere near power for the rest of our lifetimes. And in some ways, you know, I, I think in some ways that is positive that the Davos on Thames vision is dead because that was never what Brexit was all about. You know, yeah. 80, 90 percent of Brexit voters really did not share that vision of what Brexit was about. And if actually the farce of the last six weeks is what is required to finally kill that off, you know, then maybe it was needed. Maybe now we can actually get back to this much more interesting, timely, salient discussion about, okay, we now have a left and right that are at least publicly committed to this new Brexit model. What's it going to look like? What, how are we going to deliver it? How are we going to navigate these multiple crises uh, and try and get the country into a more interesting place? And, and maybe trust just you know, locked off that other option and that other opportunity and has just helped us have a sense of clarity and a sense of vision, a sense of you know, what, what this moment is really all about. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with your uh, uh, description of their misunderstanding of Brexit. And the frustrating experience I've had over the past six years is that when I speak to right-leaning people in media circles in, in London, they tend to see Brexit as, as you describe it, Davos on, on the Thames or, or Singapore on the Thames, as some of them say, as just a, a green light for free market insanity. But when I've gone around the country and done talks and met other people who who voted for Brexit, it's completely different. They saw Brexit as an opportunity to restore sovereignty, of course, to restore their own democratic clout and to create a new system of governance that would take them seriously and have a positive impact on their communities and on their own lives. So the difference between the interpretations of Brexit was always extraordinary. And I like your optimistic take that maybe it takes the uh, disaster of the trust uh, six-week or two-month uh, pr- premiership to make people realise that Brexit was uh, not just about free market stuff. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. I should say for listeners, if you can hear lots of fireworks and explosions, it's because I live in a very nice part of London that has a large Indian heritage community and they're celebrating Diwali. Um, Let's talk about what underlies all of this, which is the realignment, which you've already 
already referred to. It's something that you've written about at great length over the past few years. You've write about it in your book that will be published next year, Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics. And you talk about how there is a, a new alliance of voters, which is not the old left versus right uh, kind of voting. There's something new going on in terms of how people think when they go to the ballot box and uh, what's happened with the way in which working class voters in particular think of themselves and who they're willing to lend their vote to. So to just kick off this uh, part of the discussion, just describe to me how you understand the political uh, realignment and why you think it's important. Yeah, so so realignments really refer to the rise of a new political party or a set of ideas that dominate the agenda for a significant period of time, and they tend to change the established coalitions. They tend to lead to the rise of new electorates, like what we saw with Johnson in 2019, and what I think we've seen since the Brexit referendum. So we've been in this sort of unfolding post-Brexit realignment, which has also really been reflected in global trends. So we can see similar shifts in America, the Republicans becoming very successful among working class non-graduates, also working class Hispanic Latino voters. We can see it in the recent results in Sweden. We can see it in France and elsewhere. So many similar shifts are happening in other countries, which should give us reason, by the way, to be sceptical in Britain of the argument that, well, maybe 2019 was unique. Maybe it was you know Brexit and Corbyn and they're not factors anymore. Well, that actually doesn't explain why these things are still swirling around other Western democracies. And basically what I think has happened and what I think the evidence shows quite clearly is that we now have a very large number of voters who basically no longer feel that their values are reflected in the established political class. They no longer feel that they have a voice, not just within those parties, but across the prevailing culture within media, uh, education, uh, creative institutions, and um, are increasingly being looked down upon uh, by people within those institutions, not because of any acceptable, legitimate reason, but often simply because of who they are, because they have the wrong educational background or because they have the wrong uh, fixed identity. And as a consequence, what we've been seeing are these cross-cutting issues, basically tearing off voters from uh, left-wing parties, right-wing parties, and they've been changing sides. And if you look at uh, what we can see in Britain, even now today, yes, the Conservatives are collapsing in the polls. But one of the reasons for that, by the way, is not because you know the vast majority have switched to Labour. Uh, about 15 to 20% have switched to Labour over the last two weeks. And that's just because it's become such a you know political catastrophe, the kind of state of the, the country. The vast majority uh, of disillusioned voters on the right um, who often previously had voted for Nigel Farage or had voted for Brexit, maybe hadn't voted at all, are now saying, actually, they, they're not going to vote for anybody. They're just going to sit politics out. They just, they, they've had a go. They tried to reshape the system, and they're just going to sit it out. And so the big winner in all of this, I think, is going to be apathy. And so all realignments are about demand and supply. Now, if, if the demand is there and you supply it with an appealing message, like the Republicans are doing at the moment, as they go into the midterms, they're talking about crime. They're talking about inflation, and they're talking about um, woke issues in schools and universities. Those are the top three issues across all Republican ads at the midterms, as a study has just shown. If you look at Britain and you look at the demand for a similar type of realignment, 
There is no supply. Trust supplied it terribly. She gave people the wrong uh, formula, the wrong policies. Johnson really failed to build on what he did in 2019. Sunak, you know, the jury's out. Let's see how he tries to meet that demand with his own particular formula. But the point that is very clear is that because of these long-term demographic and cultural divides that are opening up across Western democracies, there is now ample potential for new parties and existing parties to tap into this and to mobilize these very distinctive coalitions. Yeah. And I think your description of apathy potentially being the victor of some of this stuff is is very true. Uh, I know that people from from the area of London that I come from, lots of them felt incredibly enthusiastic about voting for Brexit in 2016 and for voting for Boris Johnson in 2019, having previously spent many elections saying, they're all the same, I don't care, I'm not voting for anyone. And the thing that concerns me now is that lots of people will go back to that pre-2016 approach of thinking, what's the point of voting? Uh, It won't make any change. Uh, You'll end up with the same people in power anyway. But in relation to that, I wanted to ask you in particular about Labour. You mentioned Labour there, and Labour does seem to be benefiting to a certain extent from the chaos of the Tory party. Keir Starmer is rising in the polls. But that is a bit of an illusion, isn't it? Because it does seem that Labour is still as culturally and politically disconnected from its traditional voter base as it has been for a few years now. Labour, uh, under Starmer, when he was the Brexit uh, shadow minister, notoriously proposed the second referendum policy, which will have annoyed many, many voters. Also, we've just seen this week that Keir Starmer is unwilling to say whether Eddie Izzard would be on an all-women shortlist. I don't want to pick on Eddie Izzard. I'm sure he's a very nice guy and he might even make a good MP. But aren't those kinds of things where you have a Labour Party that is doesn't understand Brexit, actually wants to overthrow Brexit, and also doesn't understand the importance of these cultural issues, that's a party that's not going to connect with working-class voters, isn't it? Well, the first thing to say about Labour, compared to where they were two years ago, they're they're in a stronger position and they are seeing levels of support in the polls currently that they've not seen since the mid to late 1990s ahead of Tony Blair's victory. And they've done a few things that I do think are significant. Their positioning on Brexit, whether genuine or not, is an improvement on where they were in 2019. The narrative and discussion around British jobs, British workers, uh, you know, some of the stuff around manufacturing is basically where I think they would want to be. They've not yet gone near issues such as crime, which I suspect Starmer will start to talk a lot more about. He's tried to say some things on immigration, but has not really been able to go too far. But I think overall they're in a they're in a better position politically, strategically than they were certainly in. 2019 and the local election results would would certainly would certainly bear that out but i still think that labor uh remain deeply vulnerable on a number of uh in a number of areas i think one uh, all the cultural questions that you've just referenced so if you look at all the issues around women's rights identity politics language um, you know, the sort of enforcement of, of speech codes, political correctness, whatever you want to call it. These are basically fringe positions among progressive activists that are usually supported by somewhere between five and 
15% max of the country. Mm. If you were to give people a question like, you know, we should refer to women as pregnant persons, that's like a 5% position. Um, mm. You know, 80% of people out there in the country will say this is insane. You know, uh, a woman is a is a woman. You know, I mean, it, this is not a kind of complicated discussion in most places in the country. So mm. the cultural questions are certainly ones where Labour is vulnerable, much like you can see in the US, the Democrats are vulnerable on those questions too. But I also still am not quite convinced, actually, that Labour's got into the place it needs to be on economic management and on managing the economy and being trusted with the economy. Everything in politics is relative, and in some ways the Conservatives have shot themselves in, in, in their own foot by removing their reputation of fiscal credibility during the trust experiment. But Labour, I still think, are quite vulnerable, and Starmer's leadership ratings are still actually quite flat. I mean, one of the interesting comparisons with the 90s is while Labour as a party are polling similar levels of support, Starmer's own ratings are about 20 to 30 points below where Tony Blair's were at the same point in, in, in the cycle. So there is still a problem with Starmer and how he connects. Now, with someone who is perhaps a bit more of a savvy campaigner, maybe a Sunak, maybe Johnson comes back for the campaign, who knows? But with the Conservatives unloading on Starmer, uh, pointing out some of the inconsistencies in his position, will he become more vulnerable? Uh, perhaps the front bench, Labour's front bench, I think, is still actually quite weak. I, I think probably they want to be thinking about ways of, of, of changing that up and trying to make it more interesting. But they've also, lastly, I think, got a problem around electoral geography in that Labour still yeah. has not won the popular vote in non-London England since 2001. So, yes, it's making lots of progress, but actually once you go outside of the university towns and the big cities where Labour votes are stacked very high, there is still a, a problem there with Labour. And the frustrating part for Conservatives, I suspect, is you know, they had everything to play for and not only holding that territory, but expanding that territory. You know, this is one of the points Johnson's team completely lost sight of. There's still about three dozen red wall seats that are in Labour hands with very, very small Labour majorities. So even if they got smashed in parts of the blue wall, there was territory that they could have leaned into to offset those losses. Um, but that was something that, again, you know, Johnson and uh, and his team lost sight of. So I think it's a case of what base, of course, you know, the cultural questions really matter. But, we, you know, the reality is we are going into an election campaign that is going to be a rerun of 2015. It is going to be dominated by public spending cuts and taxes. Taxes are going to go up for everybody. And public spending cuts are going to be taking place across the board. And that will be the next two years of British politics. Matthew, my final question for you, which follows on from what you've just said and slightly puts you on the spot. And I say it while recognising that this is not a zero-sum game. But on that question of culture war versus the economy and what is more important, it's, it's a problematic question in a sense, because obviously the economy is incredibly important right now, especially in the energy crisis. People's bills are going up. People are unsure how to uh, keep their houses warm and, and keep food on the table. But there is a tendency, I feel, in sections of the commentariat to use those economic crises to downplay the importance of the cultural conflict. And I wanted to ask you just to end with, what do you think the Conservative Party 
and other parties, potentially even new parties, if such a thing were to emerge, what should they focus on? They obviously need to have a a positive economic agenda, but they can't afford to forget those cultural tensions, can they? No, I mean, I think if you look at the US at the moment, which is a useful comparison, um, what you've seen there is obviously the surge to dominance of economic questions about inflation, jobs, Mm. uh, cost of living. Um, But what you've also seen are individuals, movements, activists, parties that have been keeping the salience of cultural issues as high as possible, largely for electoral reasons to try and divide the Democrats. And that's been especially the case when it comes to schooling and teaching and, you know, sort of gender identity, uh, uh, ideology and all of that sort of stuff. And um, that's been a really kind of supply side led change in American politics, whereby these cultural questions have really stayed right at the top of the agenda, especially for Republicans and have more recently been joined by concerns over the over the border on uh, the southern the southern border. Now, if you look at Britain, you know I do a lot of polling, and if you look at you know how people feel about small boats in the Channel, how they feel about current levels of migration, if you said to them, "Look, um, okay, it's not a salient issue for voters," but if you said to them, "Do you think the government should conduct a review into what kids are being taught on race, sex, and gender?" Seventy-five to eighty percent of parents will say, "Yep, I think that's a good idea. Let's just see what's happening." Um, you know, lots of these issues, you know, do you think we should take on the European Convention? Uh, and if it means we can have a more robust response uh, when it comes to um, controlling the borders and defending Britain from uh, smuggling gangs and so on and so forth. These are all, you know, really supported. But, but of course, what we tend to do is we tend to look at the list of the most salient questions and we say, well, economy is number one, cost, cost of living number two, and the environment is number three. Therefore, everything else doesn't matter. And actually, voters don't think like that. I mean, voters are looking in a way to be kind of activated and be drawn into discussions and debates that, that that resonate with their daily lives. And there are lots of people today who still feel very strongly that the cultural axis of politics is as important to them, if not more important than some of the economic questions that, that we're describing. I mean, for example, I think one of the most remarkable aspects in politics today is the extent to which we refer, we refer to these issues as culture wars. Like to me, this is one of the biggest examples of how Conservatives have ceded territory on a whole array of of questions around children's welfare, women's rights, history, national identity, and you know it's not just conservatives, but people who care about those issues have essentially allowed them to be wrapped up and relabeled as culture wars and to be considered beyond the pale or to be considered you know polarizing or toxic. And to me, that's just one of the biggest political own goals that we've seen over the last. 20, 30 years, uh, which is why I don't like using that language. I think, you know, if you're referring to some of these debates, let's call, you know, call them what they are. We're, we're talking about women's rights. We're talking about children's welfare. You know, we're talking about how we think about, about our national history. You know, many of these things are the foundations of civilization, and we shouldn't be ashamed or scared or uh, bullied into thinking that they are somehow fringe issues that only five or ten percent of the country think about, and if you vocalise your concerns about them, you know you're sort of a pariah for doing so. Because, as I say, once you step outside of the fifteen percent, who also tend to wield disproportionate levels of influence within institutions, most of these positions are mainstream issues. Like most people out there, 
think we should teach as much of the good in British history as the bad. Most people out there are pretty nuanced in how they view the effects of migration. They're not sort of fanatical in saying it's all good and it's all positive. Most people accept that globalization has had negative impacts on working class communities and they sort of don't share the kind of religious tone that, that economists share when they talk about these questions, you know, and, and I think that um, that's why partly we've seen these political revolts over the last 10 years and we've seen the tremors and the earthquakes that have swept through British politics because people have begun to just call out a lot of these narratives and have begun to mobilize politically to try and make those views known. And I suspect they'll continue to do so in different forms, um, regardless of what happens with the Sunak premiership and regardless of what happens at the next general election. Matthew Goodwin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.